Hey, good morning, folks. Good to see you. Let me invite you to open up your Bibles if you have them. We're in John chapter 4 today. John chapter 4. We're actually wrapping up a series of messages. Uh, Seven weeks we have been in a series called Habits. Uh, We've been looking at spiritual disciplines or habits uh, that a Christian should embrace in their day-to-day walk with the Lord. Uh, All of these uh, have been designed to help us go deeper in our faith with Him, become more like Jesus. Uh, And so these are about Spirit-empowered disciplines, grace-empowered disciplines. Uh, And they're really given to us by God, and we're called to embrace them that we might know Jesus and walk more deeply with Jesus and live our lives out for Him to the full. Uh, So far, we've looked at a number of these. Um, We've looked at Bible intake, the importance of knowing God's Word, getting into the Word, studying the Word, allowing the Word of God to be a part of who you are, that you might know God's purpose and will for your life. We've talked about prayer and fasting, uh, sharing the gospel and giving and serving and fellowship. And today we're going to wrap up this series uh, with the last habit, the last spiritual discipline, which is uh, the habit of worshiping together. Um, And because we're coming to the end of this series, let me take a moment to let you know what is coming next. Our next series is going to be an Advent series. It's going to start two weeks from today. Uh, We're calling it, Oh Come All You Unfaithful. Uh, That's a little different, right? We're used to singing the song, Oh Come All You Faithful. Uh, There's actually a new new Christmas carol called, Oh Come All You Unfaithful. It's meant a lot to many people. It it was written just a handful of years ago, and uh, it really speaks to where a lot of people are because we come to worship, we come to our Christmas season, a lot of people are putting up, begin to put up their Christmas decorations and celebrate and, and enjoy the season, but let's be honest, not everyone enjoys Christmas the same way. And sometimes we go through difficult seasons. We don't always feel like the faithful. And so that's what this series is going to be about. It's going to start two weeks from today. However, uh, we can encourage you. We've got a devotion. Our pastors, as have, have, we have the last three years, this is the fourth devotion, Advent devotion, that our pastors have spent some time writing and preparing for you. And so as we journey through this Advent series, we'll, we'll start the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and we'll walk, work our way to the Nativity. We actually are providing daily devotions for you. And so uh, you can pick those up. I'll encourage you to grab one for your family. There's supposed to be one per family. Uh, These are available until they are gone, uh, though we'll provide some digital copies for those who do not, who are unable to get a hold of them. Uh, But make sure you pick them up. Uh, Pastor Danny will explain about that as you depart today. We're really, really excited about what the Lord will have for us. Now, Yes, we are finishing this series today, and we're starting a new series two weeks uh, from, t- from today. So what are we doing next week? Well, as you know, uh, next week is our budget catch-up day. We've been encouraging you to pray through and, and prepare for us to make up the difference. I know a lot of churches, a lot of people are struggling these days. Our church is no less than that. With all the expenses, it's impacting a lot of people. It's actually impacted our church. Our, uh, just about everything that we're attempting to do costs a little bit more or a lot more. Uh, 
than it did just a year ago. So we're going to look at uh, catching up our budget uh, for this year. We actually anticipate uh, expenses for 2024 to be about like what we've experienced this year. So we want to make sure we finish out the year strongly. And so in light of that budget catch-up offering that we're going to collect next week, I have a special challenge that I want to lay in front of you uh, as we seek to close the gap between our contributions and our expenses. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, we still have this last habit that we want to address today, this habit uh, that we all should embrace, the habit of worshiping together. Uh, though I, I sometimes wonder if we truly fail to understand what a blessing worship really is. Uh, there are people today who claim to know Jesus who have opted not to gather in his name somewhere. And there are some in parts of the world who, though they are followers of Jesus, because it's dangerous for them to gather together with other believers, uh, they, they choose not to, because if, if, if it becomes known that they're a follower of Christ and those in their culture d oppose them, it, it could be detrimental to their, to their livelihood, if not their very lives. And so we have this blessing of being together, of lifting our voices together and singing of, of praises of the Lord, of hearing His Word proclaimed. Worship is a blessing and a privilege. But I don't think we always understand that. Did, have you heard the name, uh, maybe some of our younger folks may not be aware of this person, but the, the, the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. If you've heard her name before, raise your hand. You're probably my age or older if you raised your hand. Though she is still alive and still doing ministry today, when, when Johnny was 17 years of age, she was a teenager uh, in the Chesapeake Bay region, uh, she was doing like a lot of teenagers do in the summertime, out uh, one summer uh, swimming in an in a, in a, uh, open body of water. She dove into the Chesapeake Bay thinking... Uh, that the, the place that she dove was much deeper than it, was, than, than it actually was, and she hit the bottom very, very, uh, very hard, in a hard fashion and severed her spine. And so from the age of 17 to this day, uh, she has suffered paralysis and is paralyzed from her shoulders down. And in the earliest days of, of her affliction, when she was going through re therapy and re rehabilitation, I mean, she was angry at the Lord. She was depressed. She went through all the emotions. We can well imagine what it would have been like to, to have had your life in front of you and all of your health to suddenly have all of that taken from you. That was in 1967, by the way, then, uh, then when that happened, 60, uh, 56 years ago. And, but eventually she began to realize that God still had a purpose and a plan for her life. And uh, she began to shift her focus and her mindset and began to serve the Lord. And uh, she's become a prolific speaker and author, has written over 40 books in her lifetime, and has dedicated her life to telling others about Jesus and encouraging Christians. Now, I'll tell you her story as a prelude to a statement that she once made. Now, notice, know this, for the last 56 years, she has not been able to walk. For the last 56 years, if she's going to go somewhere, she must travel there by uh, a wheelchair. But she said this. She said, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. And I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. Man alive, do I feel like such a wretch, right? 
If, if we could just have that vision of, of the significance of worship and the privilege of worshiping our Lord and Savior as she. Not having her legs used for 56 years, but she realizes that worship is a far greater blessing than walking. Today I want to challenge you upon embracing this blessing of worship. We have great freedom here to be able to lift our voices to the Lord and to gather together and, and to proclaim the goodness of God in unison together. She understood that God had made her for worship. And I'm telling you, friend, God has made you for worship. The reason why you exist, if you did not know what your purpose in life is, I'm going to tell you very plainly right here, right now, the reason why you exist is that God has created you to worship. You are here. Because God deserves to be worshipped by people. We're all made to worship. And if we're all made to worship, shouldn't we make it a habit to do so? Not just infrequently, but that we should live our lives as acts of worship, but take the opportunity to gather together to worship together. One of the most significant texts in regards to worship is the passage we're going to read today. It's John chapter 4. It's in the middle of the story of uh, a very familiar story we, we, that most of us are aware of. It's the story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. But in the middle of, of his encounter with her, as you'll remember the story, she's uh, de- dealing with a lot of emotional and relationship baggage in her life. She's had multiple marriages, and she's currently with a, with a guy that's not her husband, and she's gone in the, in the heat of the day to draw water because she knows at the heat of the day most people are not going to be at the well, so she could go there without people uh, deriding her and making fun of her and condemning her for her immorality. And Jesus happens to be at the well when she is there. And Jesus begins to talk with her and offers her living water, basically offering her salvation. Well, it's in the context of all of that, as they begin to have conversation, that she asks an important question. And so I want us to stand and I want us to read and listen to their interaction as they're talking about worship and how God is seeking worshipers like you and like me. If you don't have your place and uh, have, your, have a Bible with you, uh, it's going to be on the screen behind me. But again, I am in John chapter 4, and I begin reading in verse 19. Follow along with me. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth truth. Would you pray with me? Lord, my prayer to you in this moment is being made acknowledging that not every person that's gathered in this room are true worshipers. Not every person who is tuned in to our live feed at this moment are true worshipers. And yet, Lord, I pray that all of us will see that you are a God who deserves to be worshipped and that you've created us to be worshipers. And that you are seeking us 
as worshipers. And Lord, if you deserve worship and you've created us to be worshipers, you're seeking us as worshipers, shouldn't we then make it a habit to worship you? Oh Lord, what a privilege it is to be in this place, in this moment, to be united in spirit with fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ to worship a God who deserves it. So Lord, let us make this our practice. And for those who are wavering over over whether it is worth it, may they find that worshiping in spirit and in truth is what we've been called to do. So let it be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. As I've already told you, Jesus is in Samaria. He's actually making his way, passing from Jerusalem, heading uh, to, some, uh, to, to uh, northern Galilee. And as he's passing through Samaria, he pauses while his disciples are going and gathering some food, getting some provisions. Jesus takes a rest by the well and he meets a Samaritan woman. And in the context of, the, of their encounter, Jesus calls this woman out on her sinful life. And yet, as we probably would most likely do as well, getting called out for one sin, it's a pretty good thing to just sort of change the subject. So that's what she decides to do. The last thing that she wants to discuss is her sin, so she introduces a little distraction, and you'll see it there in verse 20 when she says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now they say that there are two subjects that you want to avoid if you're going to have conversation in polite company. You know what those two subjects are, right? All right. It's politics and who won the football game yesterday, right? No, no, no. It's politics and religion. And, and it's true, man. We, we get heated when it comes to our politics and we can get heated when it comes to, to discussing religious matters. Well, apparently the woman had never heard that before, so she dives right in headfirst on religion knowing that there's this big argument between Jewish people and Samaritan people, and it's over the subject of worship. And it's a bitter division. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of of disagreement here. The, The Samaritans, by the way, so you know who the Samaritans are. The Samaritans have Jewish blood, but they're not full bread Jews. Uh, a, long, a long time before this moment that we're reading about, uh, there were some Jew- Jewish people that began to intermarry with non-Jewish people and sort of created a, a, another race that, that we call the Samaritan people. And uh, they still had a lot of the Jewish worship practices, but there was a lot of differences. Well, the Samaritans claimed that the proper place to worship God was on Mount Gerizim. Well, the Jews claimed, no, the proper place to worship was in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. And so, if, so that you know, the, the book of Deuteronomy taught that, yes, there was but one proper place of worship, but also in Second Chronicles, specifically chapter 6, verse 6, that there is a specific place named for that worship. And here's how it reads, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. So there's only one place for worship, only one place for the temple of the holy God to be built. And according to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, that that one place is in Jerusalem. So why is it that the Samaritans thought, no, the proper place for worship, the proper place for the temple was on Mount Gerizim? 
Well, the problem for them is that they, they only accepted five of the books of the Old Testament as their scriptures. The first five books of the Bible that we refer to as the Pentateuch. Um, and which means they didn't have Second Chronicles, which is outside of those first five books. So yes, they believed that there was one proper place for worship. They just didn't have or didn't accept the scripture that said that that one place for worship was Jerusalem. And so it was by their tradition, they believed that the temple was to be on Mount Gerizim, and here's why. Mount Gerizim was located in Samaria, and it was on Mount Gerizim that Abraham, the Old Testament saint Abram, and Jacob, they built their altars there. And it was in that place where the people were blessed when they came into the promised land. It was a special place. It was according to Samaritan tradition that Abraham sacrificed Isaac on that mountain. They also believed that Abraham met Melchizedek there. In fact, many of the, the big events of the patriarchs seem to be connected in some way to Mount Gerizim. And for that reason, the Samaritans believe that, that mountain to be holy. And they built their temple there, even though the Jews tore down that temple 150 years before this moment that Jesus is interacting with this woman. And so the woman asked, you know, we, we Samaritans, we believe that the temple should be here on Mount Gerizim. You believe that it's supposed to be in Jerusalem. What say you? What's your opinion on this? You know what Jesus' response was? Look at verse 21, the next verse. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, neither of these places is supposed to be the proper and only place to worship. So this is a really big controversial subject for them. Where is the proper place to worship the Holy God? Now believe it or not, Christians even today continue to struggle with this. We continue to wrestle with it. It, 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 it. Not a month or two goes by without someone making some reference about the significance of the place of where we worship. I mean, think about it. What, what is the name of this building? I'll tell you, the official name of this building is the worship center, though many of you refer to it as the sanctuary. By the way, if you say that, I might correct you, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. You know, sometimes we get our terminologies wrong when it comes to our church buildings because we'll, we'll, we'll refer to this building as the church. You do know that this building is not the church, right? Who is the church? We are. We are. Hey, y'all have been listening. God's people are the church. Now, I, I'd like anybody else, if I, when I leave this, this morning and come to this building, I will say, hey, I'm going to... We do that. We do that in a lazy fashion. But this is a church building. It's not the church. Sometimes we refer to this place, some people do, as God's house. I grew up at, as a young believer at Yellow Creek Baptist Church in Thruston, Kentucky, outside of Owensboro, Kentucky. And when I was a kid, people often referred to that building as God's house. And I actually thought that God lived in that building when I was a child. And there were parts of that building that was a little older, and sometimes the building creaked, which when I was in a part of the building by myself and the building creaked, I thought God was walking through there, and it scared the living daylights out of me, right? Oftentimes, we look at places like this, and by tradition, we call a place like this a sanctuary, as if it's a, a consecrated place like the Jerusalem temple. And the idea is just like the temple that this place is holy ground, sacred ground, because God is here. But this building is not the temple. You know that, right? 
You need to be, be, be thankful that this building is not the temple, nor is there a temple in Jerusalem anymore, a special place separated for only uh, the, the most holy among us to go there. This room isn't the temple. This room isn't God's house. Because you do know God doesn't live here, right? Would you like to know where God does live? Here. God lives within us. We are the temple of God. God lives in us. Which is why Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And so the proper place of worship isn't in Jerusalem, nor was it on Mount Gerizim, nor is it in this room, but the proper place to worship is in your heart. You see, when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, something miraculous happens. When you recognize that you are a sinner and you are separated from God because of your sinfulness and you, you, you discover that God has done for you what you cannot do, God laid down His life to pay the penalty of your sin, the very sin that separates you from God so that you cannot be in God's presence. Jesus' blood was spilled out to make an atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty of your wrongdoing and your rebellion and your sin so that when you believe that He is God and you've trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sin, asking Him to forgive you, He does forgive you. And that distance that existed between you and God shrinks to nothing. You know how I know this? Because the miracle is the moment that you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us that the very Spirit of God comes and indwells you. That's why you are the temple. You become God's dwelling place. He takes up residency in our hearts. So how do we get from worshiping God in the temple to worshiping God in our hearts? Again, verse 22, Jesus hints at it. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. And when Jesus said that to the woman, he's not trying to throw shade at her and throw shade at the Samaritans. He's just stating a fact. The Samaritans, they worshiped the right God as best as they understood him, but they worshiped him with incomplete knowledge. And again, remember, they only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through De Deuteronomy, which means that they missed out on a whole lot of other things that God had revealed to them in Holy Scripture. And that includes uh, missing out on, on the bulk of the messianic prophecies, uh, speaking about how God was coming to redeem them one day. And that's why Jesus was saying that the Jews were better able to worship God, because they had more complete knowledge about Him. And when he said that salvation is, uh, is from the Jews, Jesus knew, because he was the Messiah, that the Messiah would be a Jew. The Messiah would come through the Jewish bloodline. Jesus would come through that bloodline. He would lay down his life and his death would open up the way for people to have direct access to God. You know, I've really been thinking a lot of, uh, about this, about the blood of Jesus and his bloodline a whole lot lately. You know, it's been over a month ago that we saw that horrific uh, terrorist act coming out of Gaza, killing uh, a lot of people in, in Israel. And listen, th that is a mess over there. We need to be praying for, for peace in Israel. We need to be praying through all of that. But, but what has just surprised me, maybe it shouldn't have, but what's surprised me so much is this rise of protest around the globe and many of them are protesting about Israel as a, as a political nation in its current state, and I get that, but there's an awful lot of more than just we hate what's going on over there 
and a whole lot of we just hate Jews. Have you been watching this? It, it, it boggles the mind. It's been 80 years or so ago that the, the, the final resolution, the Nazis tried to uh, eliminate the Jewish people and the Holocaust uh, uh, opened up. And you know, after that, people in the Western and civilized nations said never again. But I, I just can't believe what I'm seeing these days. The, this, the way that so many are being treated around the, the globe. And listen, I'm not saying that, that there's a holy side and an unholy side. Don't get me into There, there are going to be some struggles. I, I don't know the answer to the situation in, in Israel right now. But I will tell you this, this hatred that we're seeing in regards to racism, it's as if there's this demonic hatred of Jesus' bloodline that continues even to this day. That's how I'm seeing it. But you know, it's through Jesus' bloodline, specifically through His blood, that we have access to God. And, and that is how we get from worshiping God in the temple to worshiping God in our hearts. It's through Jesus and what He offers us. So, Jesus announces that God is seeking worshipers. Look at verse 23 again. He says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. There's just an incredible thought here to know that God is seeking people to worship Him. It's not that God has to have it, but more so that he deserves it. Do you understand? There's nothing insufficient in who God is that he's seeking something that, that, that will make him more complete. He's complete in who he is completely. But he is seeking people to worship him because he deserves it. And that's why we exist. We were created to be worshipers. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He came to die for our sins so that we can be forgiven and be the worshipers that we're created to be but, but, but that our sin prevents us from being. And that's what the incarnation is all about. What we're going to be celebrating in the next few weeks through the Christmas time, it's all about God coming to earth to seek people who will worship Him. And Jesus died so that you and I might worship Him. And so if you and I, we were created to worship Him and, and Jesus has died to, to allow us to worship Him and God is seeking worship, worshipers, shouldn't we then make it our habit to worship Him? The answer is obvious, of course. Worship shouldn't be something we do when we feel like it or we've got the time, something we do occasionally, but it should be our habit to do so. So what does that look like? What is that habit? How, how can we express it? Well, is it going to be like the Old Testament worship where they would take animals and they would slaughter them and offering blood sacrifices? Are we supposed to uh, uphold the old ceremonial laws or are we free to worship God in whatever way and whatever fancy strikes us? Not exactly. In fact, Jesus tells us in verse 24, he says this. He says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's, that's great, isn't it? But what does that mean? It's a great statement, but what does it mean to worship in, in spirit and truth? Well, before we go there, let me just help you to reflect again. Going back to the Samaritans and Jews, remember that since the Samaritans had rejected anything uh, Scripture beyond the first five books, they were worshiping with incomplete knowledge. God had, wasn't done with His revelation, so He had continued, but they, they stopped it at Deuteronomy. They worshiped wholeheartedly, but sometimes not so appropriately. 
Well, the Jews, well, you could almost say they were just the opposite. They, they had enough information. They had all of God's revelation up to that point, all of the Old Testament, but their hearts were not right. I love how John uh, MacArthur speaks to this. Here's what he said. He said, the two enemies of true worship are Gerizim and Jerusalem. Sincerity, enthusiasm, aggressiveness, they're important, but they must be based on truth. And truth is foundational, but if it doesn't result in an eager, excited, enthusiastic heart, it's deficient. Enthusiastic heresy is heat without light, and barren orthodoxy is light without heat. You know, when you go to church, to church, to church, I, I don't advise you to tour a whole bunch of churches, um, but you, you, if you go and, and visit a number of churches in our community, you're going to find all kinds of expressions of worship. And you're likely to find the extremes as, as John MacArthur has dis- depicted here. You're going to go into some church buildings and man, they're, they're having a good old time. They're jumping around. There's people bouncing around and singing. It's a lot of emotion, a lot of expression, a lot of noise, uh, a, a lot of uh, vocalization of their worship. And then you can go into another church and, you know, there's no better way to say it. They are the frozen chosen, you know what I'm talking about? And, uh, you know, they, they wake up just enough to, to, to leave the building, okay? I mean, they're, they're or, they may be orthodox. I mean, they may believe the truth, but they're just devoid of any expression. And their favorite song is, we shall not be moved, you know? <laughs> See, finding the balance is the key. So if we're to embrace the habit of worship, how do we go about that? Well, verse 24 sort of frames it for us, and there are two things that we should do. First is this. One, worship wholeheartedly. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, those who worship him must worship in spirit. Sometimes people like to interpret this to mean that our worship is to be spirited, like exciting, right? Passionate and expressive. And it can be that, but that's not the point of what, what uh, Jesus is saying here. That, that word spirit is, it is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, by the way. It's a reference to our spirit. And so we're getting this depiction of God is spirit and we are like him in spirit. But it's not a specific reference to the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying that those who worship him must worship from the depths of who they are when he talks about us worshiping in spirit. It's the idea that Paul had in mind in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, when he said, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And so this idea of serving or worshiping in spirit, it's, it's, it's associated, it's a, a worship term. Serving is worship term, and it's really an act of homage to, to the Lord. And so Paul served and worshiped God with his spirit from the depths of who he was. And so, again, worship isn't something that we have to restrict to a place like a temple or a worship center. It's something that goes with us wherever we go. We, we sometimes refer to this as whole life worship. And if, if the only time that you are worshiping is in this room, friend, something is deficient in your worship life. You worship the Lord as you go about your life living for Him and living out the, the truths of Scripture uh, before a lost and dying world. But it's something that takes place in the Spirit on the inside, and it should be an overflow of the change that has taken place. Our, our outward expression of worship is an overflow of the change that has happened within us. Now, that doesn't mean that our, our worship won't be spirited, by the way. Let me tell you, man, if you get, if you get radically saved by Jesus, you're going to get excited about that. 
When you recognize that you were once lost and hell bound, but now you are saved, that's something to, to shout about, amen? When, when you have been redeemed, when you were once lost and adrift, is something worth expressing. And so for some of us, what Jesus did gets us excited. Now let me also say this, our expressions from person to person are going to be different. What, what's expressive for me may be different for you. But when we worship, it's going to be hard for, for, for us to express how we feel. In fact, the scriptures elsewhere affirm this call uh, that we are to worship the Lord wholeheartedly in spirit. For instance, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 tells us, You shall love the Lord, how? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You know, when, when, when you love, it's hard not to talk about it, Right? It's hard not to express it. Well, the same is true with your worship. Our worship should reflect our love for the Lord. It's hard to contain. Be mindful that the Lord is seeking worshipers who are worshiping Him wholeheartedly, those who worship Him in spirit. And listen, it's okay if you're more reserved in your worship when, when we gather here together and, 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 and express our worship together. You do you, okay? But let me also tell you, that it's also, even though this is about worshiping as an overflow of your walk with the Lord, it is still okay to worship spirited, right? To be expressive. The Bible commands or calls us to clap our hands and to shout to God with songs of joy, to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And I've heard some of you sing, and you're really good at making a joyful noise. And he calls us to lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. So we can be spirited in our worship. But please make sure that what you do is of the Spirit. That we are to worship Him in spirit. That's because there is some potential danger in spirited worship. If we're not careful, we can let, get, let our emotions take the best of us. And when we worship in the Spirit, when, when the Spirit leads us to worship with enthusiasm, we've got to be careful not to get carried away, which is why we need some balance in our worship, which is the point of the second thing that Jesus says. As we embrace the habit of worship, we worship wholeheartedly, but we also worship appropriately. Again, verse 24, he says, those who worship him must worship in spirit and what? Truth, truth. See, worshiping appropriately means that we're worshiping in accordance with the truth of Scripture. You see, it's not a free-for-all when it comes to our worship. It's not just how you feel and you, you go with your emotions. Emotions are fine, but they are always secondary to the truth of Scripture. Because worship is far more than some religious pep rally where just anything goes. It is really our response to, uh, to the truth about God and what he, who He is and what He has done for us. The psalmist declared this in Psalm 145, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. In truth. So the question then is, what is truth? Jesus Himself answers uh, in a prayer to the Father when He says this in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So I'm here to tell you, it's okay to be a little expressive when we gather together and, and worship the Lord. It is perfectly fine. Please know that not everybody's going to worship the same way that you do, but worship is not some free-for-all. It's got to be linked to the truth, and God's Word is that truth. It, His Word is our guide, and we're to worship out of an understanding of His Word. That's why we spend so much time in God's Word. A significant amount of the portion of the time that we spend in this room together, we're opening up God's Word and expounding upon it. 
We want to make sure that our worship is tied to the truth of Scripture because the Word helps us to know more about the God that we're supposed to be worshiping. By the way, not everybody wants to hear the truth. The Apostle Paul once wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 these words. He said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What Paul was describing there may be what we call worshiping in spirit that's devoid of truth. It's okay to have the Spirit, but you must also have the truth. So what's the solution? Well, Paul gives it one verse before in verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort and complete, with complete patience and teaching. What Paul's point is, is that God's Word must be primary. It must be first because it is the truth. I'm going to tell you, this flies in the face of modern preaching philosophies where you've got some preachers out there who are just, all they're doing is preaching the felt needs, seeking to affirm and, and not to offend people. You'll often encounter, and I don't mean to throw too much shade here, but, but you know there are some that are out there that are preaching glorified self-help messages, right? And listen, I believe that the Word of God has a lot of practical truth in it because I, 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 truth is practical, but the goal of this book is not to help you have a better and nicer and kinder and more comfortable life. The point of this book, the truth that is revealed here, is to let you know that there is a holy God and you are not Him. And that you are called to live your life in accordance to His Word so that your life would be a life of worship for a God who deserves it. This life that you're living is not about you. This book tells me that this life is about Him. So the Scriptures reveal the truth about who He is, and that's why we worship Him wholeheartedly, and we worship Him appropriately in accordance to the truth. So those are the two main points that I wanted to give you today, but I feel like I need to share one more thing. So if I, if I could frame it like this, I, I would say that the third thing was a call to worship together. I could have called this message the habit of worship or the habit of worshiping, but I've I added the qualifier of worshiping together. And I, I think it's very appropriate in this day and age that we remember this. See, there's a, an assumption that runs throughout this discussion that Jesus is having with the woman and the woman is having with Jesus. And the assumption is that the, 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 the subject of worship as they're describing it is corporate worship. Notice that they're talking about groups of people as opposed to the, a person's personal worship encounter look in verse 20 she refers to the place where people worship in verse 23 jesus speaks of true worshipers in the plural right not worshiper but plural worshipers and again in verse 23 jesus like she did mentions people not a person but people who worship so the activity of worship that they're talking about and describing both of them are referring to what we call corporate worship the gathering of people together to worship. And the reason why I feel like it's important that we highlight it in this moment because there is this growing trend among people who want to be spiritual people, but they think that corporate worship is optional for the Christian. I saw a bumper sticker just this past week right out here on Maricamp. I stopped at a stoplight and I looked over and the bumper sticker said this, I go to church in the woods. 
And you've seen that sentiment before, right? I, 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 I worship God on the golf course. I worship God out on the fishing boat. Uh, and they say that as if to say, by default, that worshiping together with the saints isn't necessary. Now, let me ask you, can you worship alone? The answer is yes. If you're not worshiping the Lord alone, then I say it's hard to worship God when you gather together with the saints. So yes, the answer to that is yes, you can worship God alone. Can you worship God in the woods? Yes. Can you worship God on the golf course? Not if you play as badly as I do. You don't do that. <laughs> but yes, you can worship God on a golf course, though you're probably not going to be worshiping Him while you're out there. You can worship the Lord in many places and in many circumstances, but there is something unique and something special about the saints of the Lord gathering regularly on the Lord's day to worship the Lord together. There's just something special about being in the same room together, about praying together and hearing the Lord's word proclaimed together and lifting our voices in song together. And this, the idea that that uh, worship corporately would be an option for the believer is not something that you see in Scripture. It's, in fact, it's the opposite. That we should worship together is something that's affirmed over and over again throughout God's Word. For instance, Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankful hearts, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Or this, Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now listen, I know we have a number of folks who are providentially hindered, either because they're physically or unable to be with us anymore, though I will tell you some of those dear saints, if they could be present, they would. But I know that from time to time, some of you are not present with us and you join with us online and it's wonderful that you can have that, but I'm telling you, it is really hard to sing spiritual songs and hymns to one another through the internet, right? And so unless you're providentially hindered, join with the saints of the Lord. I'm mindful of the whole context of Psalm 95, which is corporate worship when it goes like this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then there's the tried and true, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, the reason why I've saved this particular subject, this habit of worship and worshiping together for the last, is that it really combines all the other habits, if you think about it. We talked about through this series about Bible intake and prayer and gospel proclamation and sharing and giving and fellowship and service. You know, all of those come together sort of as a crescendo when we worship together. That's why Don Whitney, who, by the way, has written probably the book on spiritual disciplines 
Uh, and you can get a copy over in 1850, our bookstore. We have a few available if you'd like to get deeper into these, these habits. But here's what he says about worship. He says, there is an element of worship and Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in meeting together with other believers. What he is saying is there's just something about gathering together as believers to worship the Lord. Something happens. There is a blessing. It's hard to articulate. It's hard to express. There is no substitute for it. And listen, I know that if you're in this room with me right here, right now, I'm speaking to the figurative choir, all right, and some of the literal choir, but do not miss the, the, and dismiss the blessing of corporate worship. There's just something about being together as God's people and being together as we worship the Lord together. Now, I want you to look back one more time to verses 23 and 24 of our main text. John 4, verse 23. I just want to point something out to you. Verse 23 says that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, that's the point I want to hit there, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship God as spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We talk about God seeking worshipers. Very specifically, Jesus said that he, the Lord is speaking true worshipers. And it's only true worshipers who will seek him in spirit and in truth. The idea that he identified that there are true worshipers raises this thought that there are false worshipers. There are some who attempt to worship but they cannot because they're not authentic, they're not true, they're not right. So what is the difference between a true worshiper and one who is insufficient, one who is a false worshiper? I'd like to go to take you, you don't have to go with me in Scripture, but I'd just like to take you back to the beginning of all history, of human history as the Bible describes it. You understand that when God created this world and He did so with spoken word. He spoke all that is into existence by just declaring it so. And day by day, he began to create. And the pinnacle of his creation were the first human beings. He created man first and then the woman, but he created them out of the dust of the earth. The Bible says it tells us that he breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living soul, a living being. And there was something about Adam and then Eve when she was created. Something about who they were and, and their nature at that time that is unlike the rest of us to this moment. You see, up to that point, sin had not entered into the world because the world in which God had created was a perfect place. Everything that he spoke into existence, we, we are told over and over again throughout each day of God's creation, at the end of the day of creation, the Bible says, and God said it was good, and God said it wasn't good, and God said it wasn't good. It was a reminder that from the very beginning, the way God intended for this earth to be, but most, most specifically, the way God intended us to be, that we were in harmony with one another. We were right with one another, but we were also right with God. I'm not going to go into all of the details. You can read of it yourself in Genesis chapter 3, but we do know there came a moment in which Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation and they disobeyed God and the consequence of their disobedience 
as they had been placed in the Garden of Eden in order to know God, to be known by God, and to worship Him, and to interact with Him, to live their lives fulfilling their created purpose, which is to worship God, they could no longer do that because they were forced out of the garden and forced out of the presence of God. So no longer were they in God's presence, but they were separated from God and incapable of closing that distance anymore. In other words, if you cannot be in God's presence, how do you worship Him? And if you cannot worship God, then how do you fulfill your purpose of worship? You can't, not on your own, not in your own strength and your own ability. See, the only person who could worship God is a true worshiper. And the, dis- the, the difference between a true worshiper and one who is not a true worshiper is distance. Either you are in a right relationship with God or you were separated from God because of your sin. True worshipers have the distance closed. Those who are not true cannot overcome the distance. Can I tell you the answer to how you overcome the distance? We've already talked about it. We talked about the bloodline of Jesus. More specifically, we talked about the blood of Jesus. See, what makes Jesus unique among all of the rest of us is that Jesus isn't just a human being and wasn't just a human being, but he was also God. I love the Christmas season and Advent. We're going to be talking about this. But one of the things that we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas around here is we're celebrating the incarnation of God. It's, it's a miracle. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. But somehow, someway, God was fully himself, but also fully a human being, all in the same person. And he was born and he walked among us, never committed one wrong thing, never committed one sin, lived a perfect life. And why that is so important is that at the end of his life, when he was 33 years of age, after he taught us incredible things and gave us the gospel, he made the gospel real by allowing himself to be executed on a cross. See, the Bible tells us the reason why we have distance between us and God is because it's the penalty of our sin. You know, the, the, the ultimate separation is death, right? When you lose somebody that you love, they are separated from you. Well, the Bible describes our state apart from God because of our sin as death. The wages of sin is death. When you sin, you deserve separation from God, and not just in a moment, but for all of eternity. And the Bible tells us that all of us have this curse of sin upon us, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what God did for us is that he took on flesh, being both God and man in the same person, and he went to the cross, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. He died the death that you and I deserve. And because of that, we can be forgiven. But let me tell you the difference between those who are forgiven versus those who are not yet. And that is they believe that Jesus is who he said he was. That he is God. And that he did what he said he was coming to do. That he came to die for our sins, which he did. By the way, when he died, he didn't stay dead. Part of the reason why we, we rejoice with such enthusiasm and we worship with such enthusiasm is that, the, that he died and they buried him and three days later he came up out of the grave. Man, if you can't get excited over that, I don't know what you're going to get excited over. 
because the scriptures tell us that, that his resurrection was the first fruits of a host of resurrections that would come, meaning those who have trusted Jesus, found forgiveness in Jesus, who are now true worshipers in him. One day when we die, we won't stay dead either. And not only do we have the privilege now because we have trusted him to be able to worship him as true worshipers, one day we get to spend for all, forever and ever for all of eternity in his presence worshiping him. That means we get to fulfill what we were created for for the rest of time. But it's only for those who are true worshipers. Only those who found forgiveness in Jesus Christ, repented of their sins, and turned to him. So when we say that the Lord is seeking worshipers, he's seeking true worshipers. In other words, he's seeking people who will turn to him for forgiveness of sins and in salvation. So let me ask you, are you a worshiper or are you a true worshiper? There's a difference, you know. If you're not a true worshiper, I want to extend this invitation to you today. Believe Jesus. Trust in him. Have faith in him. Repent of your sins and turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins and become the, the true worshiper who can only worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Lord, how grateful I am that when I was a little boy, Roman, the old church building at Yellow Creek Baptist Church, wondering if you were around the corner, that I discovered that, no, you could be within me. When you saved me and redeemed me, you helped me to see that I was a sinner in need of salvation. And Lord, in that moment of weakness, you did for me what I could not do. You saved my soul. And Lord, from that day to this, I have been a true worshiper. I haven't always acted like it. And Lord, I haven't always worshipped you in spirit. And I haven't always worshipped you in truth. But Lord, one thing I do know, that I have the ability to do so because you saved me. In fact, Lord, because you saved me, I pray that you would encourage me to be diligent to worship you in spirit and in truth. The Lord, I wouldn't just worship you by going through rote um, routine, but that I would truly worship you in my day-to-day walk with you, that I would be living my whole life for you, so that when I gather with the saints in this place, it just would be a summation of how I'm walking and worship with you day by day, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Lord, let me be a habitual worshiper. But Lord, let me also pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who've really struggle with that of late. The Lord, they would see the value of, of worshiping, and not just worshiping, but worshiping with the saints. Lord, we're, we're not all we can be without them. We miss them. And I pray, Lord, you'd draw them back. Not only that, Lord, that you would save more so that our body of worshipers, of true worshipers, would grow day by, day by week, day and week by week. In fact, Lord, I pray that even today, our body of worshipers will grow because, Lord, there are some in here who thought they were true worshipers, but they've discovered, having heard the gospel today, that they're as lost as they can be. So, Lord, I pray that you would save them and redeem them and make them true worshipers as they repent of their sin and turn to you for the forgiveness of their sin. And may they rise and worship you as you have created them to do. So, Lord, I pray we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.